0: Lord, may that statement be true in our lives, that may it be said that we built your name more than our own. May we build your name more than a church. May we build your name more than an organization. May we build your name more than anything that we could organize, grow, name, that all of it, Lord, is just tools that point people to you. So may our lives point people to your name and not our own. We thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you remain standing as we read from Exodus 11 today. We will be reading all of Exodus 11 because Exodus 11 is not that long. Um, it's actually this very weird little interlude between what normally we would think the progression of the story. If we've gotten used to sort of the, the story, particularly in the plagues, um, this does not follow the pattern. It, it, uh, chapter 11 really does feel like a bit of a diversion, but we're going to see in a few minutes why it's so important. So we're going to read all of Exodus 11 today. Before we do that, let's uh, say our prayer, a prayer of, of recommitment called Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. So say it after me. Hero Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. This is Exodus 11. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, "Go." you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Before we uh, start in on this, I I wanted to share something that happened last week uh, that was very interesting in light of what we talked about last Sunday. Last Sunday, we looked at this exchange that Pharaoh and Moses had. This was sort of kind of the final countdown, we, we, uh, we said, that this was really the final time that Moses was going to give Pharaoh a chance to repent, to give Pharaoh a chance to recognize that he was not God. And that there is a creator God that was bigger and more important than him that he was going to have to submit to. We talked about submission last week and this idea that the ultimate question that we ask as humans in our life, every single person is going to have to answer this question for themselves, is am I God or is God God? Am I the one that is the center of the universe? Am I the one that gets to dictate who I am, how I identify, how I want to live, what, what meaning and purpose means for me? Do I get to choose all those things and then therefore live that out into the world in that way? Or do I submit to a God who tells me who I am? As a creation, the creator tells me who I am, shows and reveals to me how I was made, and how I fit into his master plan. Those are really the two options we have in life. Do I go my way and decide I'm going to be God, or do I recognize that there is something bigger than myself that I must submit to, and therefore... uh, sort of I am the one that has to receive from this thing, from this, this entity, this God. And my life has to be then uh, reformed into what it is that his purpose is for me. And we talked about how Moses and Pharaoh, this has been big Pharaoh's big issue all along the way. That in fact, after the hail, he was willing to admit with his mouth, we talked about last week, he was willing to admit with his mouth that he had sinned. That he was not good, that the, he actually recognized, it was sort of this recognition that God was on par with who he is. He was willing to say, Listen, I've made some mistakes. Your God clearly is important. I'm going to, uh, with my mouth, I'm going to admit that, yes, this, this God of yours is real and true um, and kind of sits on the level of all the gods that we worship. But he was not willing to, as Moses says, humble himself submit to say and this god is more powerful than me and therefore what he says goes not what i say goes this is all like a setup and this is so this last plague is sort of all coming out of this 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 uh, chapter chapter 11 is all coming out of pharaoh's response his inability to do that to manipulate the situation to twist the truth we talked about he twists the truth he tried to tries to set uh, God on his terms. He tries to do all of these things to try and regain or at least reestablish his control and his power over and among the God of the universe. We talked about his inability to do that. And therefore, this last plague is going to come as a direct result of this last stand that Moses has with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is unwilling to do that. And so we're going to see here this uh, this. Uh, aberration, uh, this this weird little uh, chapter here. And w- what is it that it's talking about? It is is directly flowing out of this kind of this final stand that that Moses, uh, that Pharaoh takes before Moses and says, "Nope, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not going to humble myself. I'm not going to submit." Just this last week, um, I got a text from my mom who said, "Hey, I'd love to." Um, I'd love to talk with you and my brother. I have one other brother. I'd love to talk with you, share a little bit about what's going on down here in Florida. My mom is a classic snowbird, so she heads down to Florida about mid-January after Christmas, and we don't see her again until uh, almost April. She just kind of, uh, she kind of heads down there and, uh, and enjoys the, the Florida sun for uh, a few months there. My uncle lives down there as well. My, I only have one uncle. Um, And he lives down in Tampa Bay, uh, right on the bay in a beautiful condo where he has a beautiful boat and a beautiful setup. He is a wealthy man, someone that uh, really likes uh, his things, really likes to be in control. This is the type of guy he is. He's a nominal Catholic. Uh, When we visit him in the past, we will go to Mass. Uh, He will say the prayers. He will do the dance of a Catholic Mass, uh, but he is still very much in control of his life. He will say the things, but he will not necessarily believe them. Uh, I've mentioned before, my father actually passed away last summer, and this was his only brother. And so he, my uncle, has been dealing with my father's death, his brother's death, uh, for the last eight, nine months now. And my mom coming to visit them kind of triggered something in him. It was like kind of the first time his sister-in-law, the wife of his dead brother, uh, came to visit. And my mom loves the Lord. My, my dad was a pastor. Uh, they did ministry together for... Uh, decades and decades, my mom loves the Lord, and she's kind of an in your face person, so like she's not gonna pack any punches she's gonna tell you about jesus she's gonna tell you about the gospel and this platform actually of her losing her uh, her husband uh fairly early uh she's they're only they were only sixty six fairly early um has given her a platform, and the Lord has given her opportunities to share the gospel in Incredible ways over the last eight, nine months as she's processed and told people the story of losing her husband. But she got to my uncle's house, and she could tell immediately that he was very uncomfortable with her being there. There's just her presence there reminds him and kind of uh, kind of flies in the face that something uh, terrible happened. That he had no control over that, and so she, we actually got on a call with her, and she was telling me uh, and my brother all of the stuff that like he was just so closed off to the gospel. And she does it in a nice way; she's not like mean and in your face. And she's known, you know, her brother-in-law. She's known for, you know, decades. They have a relationship, and she was telling them about the hope she has in Christ, and that uh, the resurrection, the power of the resurrection that we'll be celebrating here in a few weeks. Uh, Why? That she can put her hope in Christ and know that this is not the end of the story. Well, he, every time that she approached that subject at all, he completely shut it down. He was not interested in having that conversation. He was not interested in processing that that in any way whatsoever. Almost to the point of just uncomfortableness. It got to the point where she was like, listen, it got to the end of the weekend. I was like, can I go now? Because he made it so uncomfortable and awkward. And I remember she said on the call, she said, he is a proud man, Jerry is. He's a proud man. And this has thrown him for a complete loop. That for the first time he's out of control. He doesn't, he he doesn't have a control over his life. Something terrible, his one and only brother is gone. And he doesn't know how to process that. And the and the way she was describing it was was amazing. Cause like mom, we actually just were looking at this at renewal about Pharaoh. A Pharaoh who will say all the right things and say the prayers and do all the things with his mouth, but when it comes down to submitting to a God of the universe and saying, God, I am not in control, he he shuts it down. He will not submit to the God of the universe. Even when he's hearing the gospel from my mom again and again and again. Friends, this stuff is not just stories from way back when. This is how the world works. And the question that people will be asking, the question, am I God or is God God? My mom saw it firsthand last week. So I just wanted to share that in, in light of what we've been talking about. Again, these are not just nice stories with moral lessons. These are, these are the stories about how God reveals himself and how people respond to that. Even today, even today, this happens. And so we, hear, we hit chapter 11. And again, like I said, if you, if you read it, we, we sometimes kind of miss it because we've been reading it kind of obviously every Sunday. and It's kind of been chopped up a little bit. And so you might not catch it. But if you were reading through the story straight through, you would start to pick out that pattern, particularly in the, uh, the plagues. You know, uh, Pharaoh doesn't let the people go. Moses goes and warns him another plague. Pharaoh refuses again. The plague hits. Then Moses goes and talks to him again. Rinse and repeat. Right there's sort of this rhythm that starts to happen. We see little differences here and there, and we've been picking those out in the messages. But that's sort of the rhythm. And all of a sudden, here we get this whole chapter, chapter eleven, that it has nothing, seemingly has nothing to do with anything. go, Well, where did this come from? Because we're we're, uh, we're setting up the the last plague, the plague of the firstborn. Pharaoh has kind of had his final stand and said, I'm not going to do it. So now his own son is going to have to. He's going to feel it very personally by losing his firstborn son. And all of a sudden we get these very weird details in this chapter. Let's look at it here. There's these three kind of digressions that we see happening in this chapter. The first one is in the first couple of verses, in 2 and 3. God says, Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask so so he's warned. Hey, listen, this firstborn plague is coming. Here's what we're gonna do. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man and his neighbor, and every woman and her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. The Lord made the Egyptians favorable, disposed towards the people. Right? And we we kind of get this little uh interesting um yeah, this little little interesting thing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. So they're about to, like, drop the atomic bomb of plagues on them. And the first thing Moses says is, hey, um, go ask all your Egyptian neighbors for gold and, and, and such. Go ask them for stuff. Now, that's not happened in, in the plagues before. So it's like, well, that's weird. Why, why, would, why would they do that? Tell the people, the men and women alike, to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Go ask the Egyptians uh, to do that because, hey, uh, they're going to be favorably favorably disposed uh, to you. And Moses himself was highly regarded by Egypt in there. So, okay, so why are we talking about gifts? Why are we talking about, like, stuff? That seems a little weird. That hasn't fit into the pattern of the plagues already. Then in the next uh, couple of verses, we see kind of the normal pattern. This is what we would expect to see. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, And all the firstborn cattle as well. Okay, that makes sense. That part makes sense. Moses is giving a description of what's going to happen. This is the plague, things like this. This is the only normal part in, verse, in chapter 11. We, we would expect this part. Okay, yeah, got it, right? This is, what, this is what Moses, this is the dance Moses and Pharaoh have been doing all throughout. So, okay, got it. So you talk this weird thing about like having all the people go around and asking their Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver and stuff. Okay, that's weird. But all right, now we're back on track. This is what, this is, what is supposed to be said. But then there's two more details given in this chapter that are very weird. Take a look in 6 and 7. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, the distinction part we've heard before, right? That's very common. That's normal. We've heard most of the time God saying, hey, I'm making a distinction. But this like description of like the loud wailing. Of, of the Egyptians. And, like, not a dog is going to... Like, those are some details that aren't really given often. So that's just a little... like You know when someone gives you a little, like, TMI, you know, too much information? Like, this feels a little TMI. Like, okay, God, like, uh you know, not even a dog's going to bark in Israel. But, like, there's going to be such loud wailing and crying in Egypt. Like, it's never... It's never going to have been heard before and it's never going to be heard from again. Okay, like... Thanks for the information, kind of weird, whatever, got it. And then then it gets even kind of stranger in verse 11, another detail. And then all these officials of yours, Pharaoh, all your officials, they will come down and they will bow down to me. This is Moses. They will come down and bow to me saying, go, you and all your people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. Then Moses hot with anger left Pharaoh. Okay, so first off, hey, this plague is coming, and I'm going to give you these three weird details. One, I want you to go and ask all your neighbors for stuff, and they're going to give it to you because they're favorably disposed to you. Okay, interesting. Uh, two, there's going to be this super loud wailing and, like, that n- you've never heard before, you're never going to hear again, but not a dog is going to bark in Israel. Okay, that's okay. Third, all your officials, Pharaoh... They're going to come, and they're going to bow down to me. This is Moses talking. They're going to bow down to me when this happens. And then the chapter just ends. And that's it. Then we move on to chapter 12, and then the, that's the chapter, of the first, and the, like, then we get back to kind of normal. So we have this, like, and it's really short, too. This chapter is, very, is much shorter than the other. So we get this, like, really weird little chapter, kind of in the middle, right before, leading up to the final plague, and we're given these three kind of aberrations in the story, and uh, when you're a good Bible reader, these are the patterns you should notice. When when you're reading the Bible well, you notice when we're given, there's, you're given a detail, and you go, "Why did I need to know that?" Right? If if there's a detail given in a story in the Bible, and it really doesn't drive the plot forward, there's a reason for it. There's something. There's a. There's a. There's a a message. There's something that the, that the author, there's something the Holy Spirit wants to communicate. And they're not going to say it directly. They're going to say it uh, with these little notes. They're assuming you know the story so well that when you read the detail, you're going to go back and remember a detail from earlier in the story that's going to make a connection. It's almost like the learning goes deeper when you discover it for yourself versus just someone telling it to you straight. That's what's happening here. We're given these little details, and we're, and, and what, the, what the author, what the story is asking of us is, do you know the Bible well enough that when you hear these details, you go, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I know why. I know why they gave there. Because earlier in the story, there was a connection that makes sense. Now, I will tell you, I don't know the Bible that well. <laughs> I need other people to point that out for me. So if you don't know the connections, that's okay, because I didn't either. Um, these are, these are rabbis and scholars and, and people that uh, read the Bible so intensely that they could see what the Holy Spirit was doing and make these connections for themselves. So I will walk you through the connections, not because I saw them myself, but because others way smarter than me made these connections for the first time. So why these three details? What, what is God showing us with them? Well, all three of them are connected back to Moses' initial conversation with God at the burning bush. Have you ever noticed that, like throughout this story, we keep coming back to the burning bush? We keep coming back to that initial conversation. Like it's almost like that was like the most important. That was like we talked about God's coming out party. He is he's revealed everything to Moses in that conversation, and then the rest of the uh, of the Of the story is referencing, like, remember when I said that back then? Well, here it's playing out now, right? So we keep coming back to that story. All three of these have their connection back to that conversation with God at the burning bush. Let's take a look at the first one. First, um, the articles of clothing, right? The or not? Excuse me, not articles. Are the articles of gold and silver, right? Hey, you're going to be able to do that. God literally said this was going to happen in Exodus three. He literally said, if you remember, at the burning bush, he was going to talk about this. And God said to Moses, And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and every woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. So quite literally, if you remember, God said this earlier on, Hey, when you're about ready to go, you're not going to go empty-handed. You're going to go, and you're going to ask your neighbors, and they're going to be favorably disposed to you, and they're going to give you stuff so that when you head out into the desert, you're going to be well-prepared. You're going to have the things that you need going on. So Exodus 11 is just the fulfillment of what God promised Moses in, uh, in uh, chapter 3. But there's an interesting kind of connection to it. Why, why is going on? Well, I believe, and a lot of others believe, that this actually deals with the economic injustice that happened to the, to the Israelites. The Israelites were slaves under the Egyptians for 210 years. Their people and generations, they had been slaves to Egypt for 210 years. What's the difference between employment and slavery? You don't get paid, right? There's no payment. When you're a slave, that's it. When you're employed, you do a job and you are compensated for it. And so the idea is is hey, you worked for 210 years with no payment. So when you leave, I'm going to make that right. They're going to pay you everything they earned for you. In fact, the word plunder in Hebrew we, we don't usually use that word. We only think of the word plunder when we think of like pirates, right? Like pirates plunder. That's, oh, that's really all we think about. But in Hebrew, that word plunder uh, literally means to recover. To recover. So what God is saying is, hey, because in, remember in Exodus 3, he says, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. But again, that word often when we think of it as like stealing, We think of that word plunder like as a pirate who takes things. But in Hebrew, the word literally means to recover. You're going to recover that which the Egyptians took. You are owed 210 years of payment. And so when you leave, I'm going to make that right. There's like this economical justice that happens. You shall plunder the Egyptians. You shall recover Everything to rescue or recover. So I have come down to recover, to rescue you from their hands. God is recovering that which is owed to Israel. So the first thing is hey, as you go, I'm going to make the economic injustice right. You're going to get repaid everything you were owed. Second one, the crying out, right? The, The Egyptians are going to cry out. They're going to wail because of anything you remember, anything about back to the conversation at the burning bush? That's exactly what God says that the Israelites were doing, right? Take a look in verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying. They're wailing. It's the exact same word in Hebrew. Wailing and crying. Out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. Interesting. Again, let's keep that theme going. God is going to make things right. Exodus 11 is all about making things right. Hey, I'm going to recover economically what you were owed. And I'm going to give the Egyptians exactly what they gave to you. They made you cry out. They made you wail. And so in God's divine justice, it's going to be the same for them. They will now be the ones that will wail. They will now be the ones that will cry out. The oppressors will now experience the consequences of what they did to you. So again, oh, it's coming back to this conversation. And again, if you know the story well, if you're the people well, and Moses goes, hey, first off, go out and ask. Your neighbors for stuff, they're going to go yes exactly because that's what God said. God said hey I, you, we're going to get to plunder we're going to get to recover we're going to get back everything we owe, and then Moses and then God says hey and everybody's going to in Egypt is going to wail and cry out. You would go yeah that's right because that's that's what we were doing we were the ones wailing and crying out, and so on that night they're going to get a taste of their own medicine they're going to experience the divine justice. Of what goes around comes around, and then there's one more. The Lord, all the officials of yours, Moses said, "Hey, all of your officials, Pharaoh, all the all your people, they're going to come and they're going to bow down to me." And again, if you know the story, you will connect it back to the burning bush and go, "Yes, that that's that happened too." Exodus 3:18. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Has met with us. This is what Moses is to say to Pharaoh. Hey, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God. So the request was that we are to go, Pharaoh, because there is a God out in the desert that is not you. You are not the God. And therefore, this connection there. You are. We are going to go out into the desert, and we are going to worship our God. Which again, the implication is, is that you are not our God. You are our slave driver. We need to go. We need to go bow down and worship them. We need to go worship our God. And Pharaoh says, "No, you don't get to go bow down to your God." You need to come serve me and bow down to me instead. Right? That was Pharaoh's. That was Pharaoh's uh, response. So, in God's perspective, God has a group of people that is His. This is my people. I've established them, and I am drawing them out into the desert to worship me, to bow down to me. And Pharaoh, you said no. You said, "I'm taking your people from you." They may not go out into the desert to worship you. I'm keeping them for myself. They will bow down to me instead. From God's perspective, that's what happened. God said, tell Pharaoh, you are my people and you are coming into the desert and you will bow down and you will worship me. And Pharaoh said, no, I'm taking God. I'm taking your people from you. They don't get to go bow down to you. They need to stay here and bow down to me. They need to be my slaves. I am in control of them. And so this is actually justice for God himself. God says, okay, fine. But when the time comes, I'm going to recover economically what you took. I'm going to recover what you emotionally took. And I'm going to not only take my people back, I'm going to take your people too. Your officials are going to come. and They're going to bow to me too. Because that, Pharaoh, is what you did to me. You took my people from me. And you did not allow them to bow down and worship me in the desert. You did not allow me them to do that. So you know what? When I take my people back, I'm going to take your people too. And they're going to bow down and worship me too. This is what's called divine justice. And we actually through it, see it throughout the Bible. We see it all the time in the law. It, even in the law, as the people begin to learn about God's justice, it's always, if you steal... You have to give back four times. You, you actually lose even more in the return. Or if you take a life, then your life has to be taken. It's, uh, this eye for an eye is the whole idea of God's justice in the Old Testament. You do this, you will get back that which you have taken, you have stolen, you have manipulated. Whatever it is, you get it back. And we see it very clearly here in Exodus 11. You stole from my people when you put them in slavery. They didn't get a paycheck for 210 years. So when they leave, they're going to recover. They're going to plunder everything that you didn't give them. They're going to get back. You did not. You were not good to them. You made them wail and cry out. So in my justice, you will get to wail and cry out. And you didn't allow them to come and bow down to me. You took my people from me. And you kept them for yourself. And so I am going to not only bring my people, I'm going to take your people and bring them back. This divine justice over and over again. God makes things right. God makes things right. He is the one when things look at its worst when we have been hurt, when injustice has happened, when, when everything feels like it's coming unraveled, God is a God that promises, I will make it right. Now we see it in this story very tangibly, but we know it's a God who will always make things right eventually. In God's timing, he will make everything right. At the end of Moses' life, he's up on the mountain. He never does get to cross over into that promised land, but he leads his people well for 40 years. And at the end of Moses' life, his very last act as the leader of Israel is to sing Israel a song. He sings him a song in Deuteronomy 32. And I just want to read you a few portions of this song. Can you imagine sitting there after everything he went through after all of uh, 40 years of learning about who God is, and God wants to God wants to share a song with him. I think it's me. <laughs> I'll keep my leg as still as possible. <laughs> Moses sings this song. A couple of, uh, this is verses, uh, you know, uh, I've picked out a few verses here and there out of uh, Deuteronomy 32. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. This is the Lord, says the Lord. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. A few verses later, see now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I will bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and solemnly swear, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. A few verses later, rejoice you nations with his people for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. See, God says, I will repay. I will repay. Now in the New Testament, maybe you've heard that before. In the New Testament, Paul actually takes this quote from Moses' song in Romans 12 to remind the people That it's God's job to repay, not ours. See, when we see God's eye for eye justice, it helps, it makes us, it tempts us to want to help God along in that. Well, I'm just an agent of the Lord, right? So, you know, if eye for an eye is the thing, well, then, yeah, let's do that. Let's eye for an eye. And so much of the injustice that Christians have been guilty of comes in the form of this misconception that we are God, and therefore it's ours to avenge and not God. So uh, Paul puts it this way: Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. And here's where he quotes Moses. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, there's a lot of evil in the world, and it's easy to be overwhelmed and overcome by it. Where is God? Where is God when evil and injustice and difficult and challenge faces us. Who in your life has wronged you? Where has life seemed unfair? Where have you gotten a bad rap? Even in the little things, sometimes someone who has unfair and inaccurate opinion of you, some, somewhere, you know, again, it's not, it doesn't have to be in the big giant thing. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just in the little things. Somebody said that and it bothered me. Or I know that person doesn't necessarily think highly of me and I think it's inaccurate. And I somehow need to prove myself or to stick it to them or put them in their place. All of these little acts that remind us or to tempt us into thinking that we are God. It always comes back to that question. We are God and therefore it's mine to avenge. It's ours to avenge. God's justice is real. We see it clearly in Exodus 11. But we have to remember to let God be God. And as far as it depends on us, we live at peace with everyone. Let's invite the band up as we finish up here. It's so tempting to take matters into your own hands, to avenge the wrongs yourself, to be the judge and jury. And what we take great hope in is that we have a God who will make things right. He will. He did it with his people. Exodus 11 is a testimony to that. That the things, the wrongs of the world, God is not a passive little God that just wants to be friends with everyone. No, God is a God of justice. And he will repay. They use the word vengeance at times. God is a passionate God that will make things right and has no use and no tolerance for evil in the world. And he will cut it off with his flaming sword, as the song says. God will make things right. But you're not God. And that's the question that keeps coming back. Are you God or is God God? And what God says, as far as it depends on you, you live at peace with everyone. And I'll take care of the rest. In those things that have hurt you. In those people who have wronged you. In those situations, really hard situations, where you know you, didn't, you got the short end of the stick. Everything in us tells us that I need to go and fix that. And sometimes God calls us to be part of a solution. So we're not not asking for... But when that stirring in your soul says, I need to go take matters into my own hands. And I need to recover and recoup and to take vengeance and to repay is the moment where we forget we are not God. Our hope is a God who will make everything, even the little things, will make them right in his time. As far as it depends on us, we live at peace with everyone. In John 16, Jesus is reminding his his followers that he will make things right. He will overcome it all. And gives this mm, this very very like balm to your soul. He tells them, "I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace." Because we're not at peace when we have a we have a vengeance. We're not at peace when we have a score to settle. We're not at peace when we believe we're a God and we need to fix all the wrongs based on our perspective. Jesus says, I have told you these things that in me you will have peace because in this world you will have trouble. The things that won't go right, the injustice and evil, difficulty and challenge, and you will feel wronged. But take heart. Because I have overcome, I have rights. Through Jesus' and death and resurrection and ascension, we have, the, we have the hope of a God current on the throne and has already overcome it and will continue in his time to put things right. There will be an Exodus 11 moment for all of us. And there will be an ex, Exodus 11 moment for other people based on something we've done that we don't even know we, where we have wronged someone. But the hope of Exodus 11 is that we have a God through his death and resurrection and ascension seated at the right hand of the Father. He has come and will overcome the world. And so we take peace knowing it is his to avenge. He as far as it depends on us, we live at peace. With Easier said than done, but may you live into that peace.